Welcome to Hope Plus, a podcast for Hope Community Church. If you're a new listener, we encourage you to check us out at hopecommunity.ca or find us on social media. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, this is Dave Gruen. I'm the, one of the pastors at Hope Community Church, and today I am joined by two special guests. I have to my left, Ed Gerber. Hey, everyone. And I had Todd Statham on my right. Hello, everyone. Hello, Dave. Hello, Ed. It is a gift to have you both here. Um, I'm going to get you to introduce yourselves, but I will just say, I call them both chaplains, but I'll get Ed to say his official title and what he does and where he serves. So go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I'm at Trinity Western University, and I'm university chaplain and director of student ministries there and part-time professor. And I am... Christian Reformed Campus Pastor at the University of British Columbia's campus in the Okanagan, and I'm the coordinating chaplain of UBCO's new multi-faith chaplaincy and services. It's a gift to have you both here, and I just want to say, Todd, specifically, uh, Todd resides in Kelowna, and so he made the trek out here for other reasons, but we stole him while we had him in the Lower Mainland. Well, I'm uh, happy to be here. Well, it's a privilege to have a conversation, too, about campus ministry. Um, there's a number of reasons why I wanted to record with both of you. And one of them is just you have a unique vantage point into the lives of students when they're away from home, sorting out their faith. Um, many students from our churches are at your respective universities. I would say more at Trinity Western than UBCO. But I think, number one, you get a sense of where students are at from their experience. Number two, we want to spend some time in this podcast reflecting back in some sense, I think Ed and Todd get a sense of the fruit of 18 years of discipleship in our various churches and what that looks like on campus. And I'm going to ask them to give advice. Hey, if you could move from campus ministry into pastoral ministry and you could disciple people from zero to 18, based on what you know on campus, what would you do or what would you tell us to do? So we're going to get some advice from people who see the lives of university students and walk alongside of them. But I'm going to ask a question that I think a lot of people have. Actually, I'll ask this first. What led you into campus ministry? Like, why not pastoral ministry? Why not being a professor? You both have PhDs. Like, what brought you to campus ministry? You can start, Todd. Oof, good question. Both the pastorate and university position have at times been very attractive to me. Um, but for whatever reasons, and I guess by God's purposes, I've not found myself in any kind of full-time capacity in either of those roles I studied to be a pastor, a Presbyterian minister, and have a great love for the church. And at the same time, have always had a fascination with, with ideas and pursued graduate studies and then doctoral studies and really, really love and value the university. There's a, a well-known line by Charles Malik, who's a Lebanese thinker and one of, the, one of the leading lights in the United Nations in the 50s, where he says the university is the lever by which we move the world. And uh, I, I've just been fascinated with that line ever since I heard it and thought, this is, this is definitely a place where we want the gospel to be injected. We want Christian presence, that lever, that hinge. So loving the church, loving the university, at some point it felt to me like university chaplaincy would just bring the best both worlds together for me. So by God's grace, that's where I am today. Yeah, I would say my pathway to university chaplain at Trinity uh, was very different. In fact, I had been ordained, uh, have been ordained since 2004 and served churches in Washington State and Iowa, upstate New York, and then took a five-year stint to do a PhD 
I'm also lover of ideas, always wanting to go deeper, absolutely love the life of the mind, but I also love Christ Church and the opportunity to connect uh, the theological work that you're doing with the lives of people in the pew. And I always felt it was a way of staying grounded. But uh, my tenure at Willoughby came to an end. I actually was working on a Master's of Arts in Counseling Psychology just after COVID, thinking about how much our young people were suffering um, loneliness. And I'm, I think we'll get into this a little bit later and anxiety and depression and isolation and all sorts of things. Um, and I thought, you know what? Maybe I can be some of some use in that area as well. And then um, I was asked to apply for this position at Trinity. And to be quite honest, initially I said, um, I, I have no desire to be a university chaplain. And when I was given a bigger picture of what it looks like to be a university chaplain and the opportunity to rub shoulders, not only with staff and students, but also with faculty and extend some work academically, it began to look very, very attractive and coincided with my primary passion. So I applied for the job and got it. I should say here that I think Todd is the resident expert on chaplaincy at a university setting because I've only been doing this for about a year and a half. So I started in uh, August 2022 and have uh, will come to my two-year marker here in August again. But it's been a wild ride and I'm learning a lot. There's so many more moving parts and great joy. But we're in very different contexts and it might be helpful to say something about that too. You read my mind. Todd, talk a bit about your context. Yeah, UBC, as I'm sure most of you listening know, is public university, and it's it's secular, would define itself as secular. And of course, that's a term that can mean many things to many people. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm always, I always try to define what I mean when I use the word, because we can use it in a way that's advantageous to faith, or we can use it in a way that blocks faith. And certainly when I started at UBC, in the administration, people were using secular in a way to exclude religion from from the fabric of the university. Mm. So there were student clubs and Christians on campus, obviously, and people of other faiths, but not not kind of official recognition or uh, any kind of official accommodation. And that's been that's been the that's that's been my my challenge over the last seven years. I've been at UBC UBC Okanagan for seven years is to is to create create spaces on campus where faith can flourish. And just in the last year and a half see the fruit the fruit of some of those of some of that labor and uh, it's been a joy to see for example the university has has struck a memorandum of understanding with myself and with some of the other faith workers on campus and we've got an actual multi-faith chaplaincy emerging and uh, i think that would be a, a difference from from the context in which ed's working you know we work in a very in a very deliberately multi-faith way and it's actually very important and advantageous for us to work with other religious groups so that we're able to to kind of leverage that support and that uh, and those numbers to get more concessions from the university or just to position ourselves better so that we can speak in in a faithful way into some of the conversations so i've been doing this longer than ed but it's kind of new for me too because it's just a year and a half since i've been officially recognized as a chaplain at the university and the door is open now i'm able to sit at the table in a lot of administration administrative meetings and um, in, in official roles that, that give me an opportunity to be a Christ-like witness in different places. Um, it's been a challenge, though. It's been a struggle. And uh, it's st- that still is, is ongoing. But it's, uh, for me, I, I've, I feel like my learning curve is perpetual. And every, every season of life, I'm learning something new and figuring out how, how to be a faithful Christian witness in, in the public sphere and in, 
and a public sphere that's sometimes quite hostile to faith. Do you ever envy Ed? He just gets to do chapels. He gets to <laughs> dis- disciple freely. Well, it's interesting because we are actually very much becoming a multi-faith campus. Mm. We are yeah. now, Trinity has 6,000 students, over 50% of which are graduate students. They're coming from Iran. They're coming from India. They're coming from China. And 81 different countries are represented at Trinity. By and large, the graduate population that we have coming in is not Christian. So there is a fascinating element of my chaplaincy, which is becoming not multi-faith per se, as in we're representing, but we're certainly openly listening, developing relationship with those from uh, other religions, and trying to care for them in the best possible way we can. What we're witnessing, too, is people coming to faith in droves. And that's super exciting about my context is we are an openly, unapologetic, evangelical Christian university, and we have the opportunity to share the faith winsomely mm-hmm. with our graduate students. And um, one of the great joys that I have is we have a team of people. So I have an associate chaplain of worship who deals with chapel services, training our worship teams, um, running a group of student leaders. And then I have an associate chaplain of discipleship who runs all of the discipleship ministry. We have 74 student leaders underneath us who receive stipends in order to do the work, which is pretty awesome. And then I just recently hired an associate chaplain to Richmond. So um, we have, as you may or may not know, we have two campuses, one in Richmond, one in Langley with three different sites. And then actually we also have another campus in Toronto. So, um, yeah, so there's a, a big team working together, and there is kind of a, if you could put it that way, a multi-faith element. So I'd, I'd love to hear more about how you're kind of leaning into that, and as a Christian, what your goals are, and how you see ministry operating in that context. It's an exciting development mm. at Trinity. I wouldn't yeah. aware of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't mention this yet, but uh, Ed is also a member of our church. And uh, it's been encouraging. Ed will often bring uh, different people who are studying at Trinity Western in some graduate program to church for the first time. And that's been pretty rich for us as a mm-hmm. church, even to be connected in that way. Yeah. Here's a question that I think a, a number of people might have in their heads. Uh, chaplaincy is a very unique job. It's, and I think even for both of you, there's some differences and your days look very different. I'd love for you to give us a window into a day in the life of your job on a regular day. You could go first, Todd. Yeah, that's a good question, Dave. And I've I've had this question posed to me several times, um, particularly as I preach in congregations in the summer. I, I, I preach in mostly Christian Reformed churches, congregations that support the work of the campus ministry at UBCO. And people are often mystified by what uh, a chaplain does because we don't, we're, we're not visible in the same way that a pastor is. We don't show up on Sunday with a sermon. And I'm not reducing pastoral work to just the I'm sermon. offended. <laughs> you know that what I mean. That is all I do. I know it is. You're one hour a week. Um, but at least they see you for that one hour. So what does a chaplain do? And there's really no, there's no typical day, I would say, for, for me. The, the longer I've done this job, I think there's more, there's more rhythms and there's, there's some seasons that have a bit more order to them. And that might include, I, I teach, for example, a course once a year that started in the last couple of years. So um, that gives me lecture time and office time. And I, I run a small group every, every year, at least one. Um, right now, for example, I'm doing a small group 
on C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters with students, which is exciting. Fantastic. And we've got maybe 12 students who come out. And for most of them, they've never, they've never encountered C.S. Lewis. So this is a first and it's exciting. I have a couple of, of faculty clusters that I organize and execute. Um, I have a fair amount of administrative work, but that's very haphazard. It, it really depends on what's going on um, in, the, in the life of the university, at the, in the university calendar at that time. Probably the most of my week is pastoral care in conversations with students and excessive amounts of coffee drinking. I've, I've since switched to decaf over the last couple of years to, to save my body the wear and tear, but multiple conversations per, per week. And I, I, and I, I set those up um, and Ed would testify to this. Students aren't people you make appointments with one month from the date. You, you make the, you, on the Monday when your calendar is clear, my calendar is clear, I kind of fill it up for the rest of the week on that Monday by sending texts. And, um, and then I do something that, that I learned from, from friends, Neil and Virginia Lettinga, who used to be at the University of Northern British Columbia. And they, they, they recommended to me when I started what they call holy loitering, which is a great phrase. And it's, it's basically just to insert yourself in a public place on campus and see whom God brings into your path. I do that multiple times per week. I, use, I have a couple spots, the Starbucks, the, the large food court. And I just, I sort of hold court there and I take some work with me, whatever I'm working on, you know, prepping a lecture or whatnot. I was thinking about this in anticipation of, of this podcast. I did this, I did this on Thursday last and, um, I was in the cafeteria for maybe two hours and four people that I know dropped by and we had just impromptu conversations and it's everything as casual from like, what's your day look like? How is your midterm? But more often than not, some, something spiritual happens, some, some, some Christian angle happens where we end up talking about um, something they read in the Bible or a question they have. So I, I highly recommend this practice of, of holy loitering and uh, practice, it, practice it well and extensively. I like that. Holy loitering. Yeah. So for myself, what does a regular day look like? I don't know that there really is a regular day. And I think my job description is a bit different from Todd's in this regard as well. So the university chaplain side of things is kind of like campus pastor. And so the holy loitering, meeting with people, setting up appointment with students, as well as staff, as well as faculty, if things are going on. So it's kind of being pastor of about 6,000 people. It's an impossible job. And um, most people there are very receptive to this kind of spiritual direction and longing for it and desire for prayer, desire for spiritual conversations. So I've very much recently been feeling like I'm hosting two jobs. The one is the university chaplain side, campus pastor, as it were. But the other side is I'm director of student ministry. So as I was saying earlier, I have people who are reporting to me. And so there's a very large administrative side of it as well, where I'm just simply dealing with emails. I'm dealing with HR stuff, dealing with job descriptions, dealing with policy stuff. Um, also working with administration upstairs with the president and the provost and the vice provost and stuff. So that's a great delight to be close to people who are working uh, from a very high perspective on the organization of the university, projecting the vision, stuff like that. So that's really quite exciting. So I might be in a university leadership council meeting or a meeting with uh, students or faculty. So it's all over the place, but there are regular rhythms. So for me, I, there definitely is the preacher still. So I will preach maybe seven or eight times a semester. We have chapel Monday through Friday and every other Sunday. So it's quite a lot. Um, our offerings are different 
Monday and Wednesday are kind of a tr- what you would expect a traditional chapel to look like, almost like a church service. We only have half an hour. So students are in and out back to class by 12 o'clock. So we have 11 to 11.30, Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday, are kind of a more traditional where you have 15 minutes of worship, 15 minutes of word, and then on Fridays it's Praise Chapel. And the students love Praise Chapel. We get about 250 to 300 students out who just want to praise the Lord, and it's a great joy. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays we do something called Devotion Chapel or Breathe Chapel, where it's more contemplative, focus on the spiritual disciplines. Maybe there's an interview with somebody where they ask them about their spiritual journey. How do you engage in fasting or what other spiritual practice do you engage in? And uh, that's been going quite well as well. And then every other Sunday night, we have what's called Sunday Night Alive. And it is uh, worship for an hour with scripture intercalated through it. And punctuated. So I'm all over the place and don't feel like, uh, don't feel I have enough time in the day to get everything done that I would like to get done. The other thing that Todd was saying, which I think is interesting, is you think about a university chaplain job, is we are, a lot of our time is dictated by the academic calendar. And so summers are very, very different and summer comes pretty quick. Um, it comes, you know, mid April is end of classes, students are in exams for a week or two. By May 1st, we're into summertime. And so as I experienced last year, this is a time where we can go on extended retreats and you really prep for the year. Once I hit August 1st, though, in our context, we are hitting the ground running because we have all of our student leaders coming back for what we call slow week, which is student leader orientation week. And it's a week of intensive leadership training because we always get new batches of student leaders in. So it's fun. It's uh, very, very different from pastoral ministry in many ways. Uh, I live by my calendar because I don't know what's coming next. Whereas when I was pastoring, I'd have, this is one of the things I miss. I don't know if Todd can identify, but I miss the leisure to study the word of God and to really think deeply about that. I just don't have the time to do it as I used to, or even to read. Because when I come home, I'm pooped from the day. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't read as much as I should mm-hmm. or as much as I'd like to. And my reading is directed primarily to being able to pull off lectures, which are coming together often the night before, or yeah. I give, I give a number of talks on campus and it's the same as sort of prepping the night before it, it can be, it can be intense. Mm-hmm. Listening to Ed talk, it, it, one of our strengths in the reform tradition is, is to really value the institution as chaplains. Mm-hmm. I have a, a Pentecostal friend who's been working with me. He's been the Pentecostal student club leader for a number of years. And he says, I'm a, I'm a student pastor, um, but Todd is a university pastor. Mm. And speaking, hearing, hearing Ed speak is a reminder of that. I think in the Reformed tradition, we just, we, we have a, a great valuation of the power of an, inst- of an institution, whether it's the church or the university, to shape people. And so we end up with people like Ed with his fingers all over the place because we're serving an institution. That's right. And that means a lot of very, it's variegated work and a very kind of wide horizon mission, missional focus. Well, and one of the things you recognize too is the role of the community in giving you an office. And, and I don't mean a physical space office. I mean, because I, because I don't have one, but yeah, yeah no, go on, go on. <laughs> I mean the office of a chaplain yeah. or the office of an ordained pastor, because you're given this titular, you're given this title, and um, people will honor you in a certain way or look to you to do things in a certain way. 
And I find that that's, that's part of the remarkable thing about an institution or institutional life is we are given this office and we get to contribute to something that's going to outlast us, yeah. which is the beauty of institutions. This will outlast my life. It will outlast my tenure. So it kind of takes the pressure off and you say, oh, Lord, just let me be faithful in this day with the gifts that you have given me and the time that I have and the capacities I have. Um, I like to remind myself as well as other pastors that our mantra should be what John the Baptist's mantra was, is I am not the Christ, but I'm going to be faithful and point to the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, when you're in a context where there's always more work to do than you could possibly do, it's a really good thing to remind yourself of. Yeah. I'm just appreciating the diverse skills you need to have and giftings you need to have for chaplaincy. Like in Ed's case, there's a lot more administrative and even dealing with like leadership levels, which is a gift. I mean, um, there's something about shaping the life of the institution and policy and all the rest that that's uniquely, that's long-term shaping as well. And I'm looking at you, Todd, and the pastoral gift you have to meet with students one-on-one, like these are very different jobs in very different places. And I'm I'm grateful for the diverse gifts you bring to that role because it's it's actually quite different than pastoral ministry as I'm listening. And I'm also impressed, I'll just say this, that you get to exercise your academic gifts and pastoral gifts in unique ways on your campuses. Mm-hmm. Just to focus this conversation a little bit now on like your interaction with students. Both of you spend time with students who've grown up in the church, maybe Ed more than Todd. What is your sense of how these students are doing? in their walk with Christ once they move away from home and establish their own rhythms on campus? Well, for us, there's a wide range of students that come into Trinity Western. You have students who are lukewarm, as you're going to find anywhere. You have some that um, the penny has not dropped in terms of their faith yet. We have an athletics department, which is scholarship driven, and we have open enrollment. So not everybody who is there is uh, in the faith, as it were. but The majority of the students that I get to interact with are truly remarkable. They're on fire for the Lord. They are actively seeking how they can foster, cultivate, build their faith. They're seeking to be engaged in Christian community. They want to be student leaders. I had a student come to me yesterday morning. Um, We had a one-on-one, just a meeting, a pastoral meeting, and um, came with a depth of humility and a desire to learn. And this student said, you know, uh, Pastor Ed, I, or, camp, or whatever they call me, I get called, I don't know about Todd, but I get called Reverend Doctor, I get called Professor, I get called Doctor, I get called Pastor, I get called Chaplain Ed, I get called uh, all sorts of different things. So, that illustrates my point about the diverse gifts oh, for the physician. Well, it's, it is pretty funny, but yeah, he's like, you know, I've just been wanting to learn how to be more tactful lately. Can you help me think about scripture and how I can be more tactful? And so we talked about Proverbs, and we talked about um, not throwing pearls for pigs, which I take Jesus to mean in this instance. If somebody isn't ready for the wisdom that you have to give them, don't give it. And I think there's Proverbs which support that as well. It's, you know, answer a fool in his folly, lest you join him in his folly. And the next verse says, do not answer a fool in his folly, lest you join him. Now, what's the difference? The difference is the context, and the wise person knows when somebody's going to be receptive and when the person's not. Anyways, I diverge. But, uh, yeah, so our students are all over the place, um, but mostly I'm interacting with students who are very, very passionate about their faith. It's voluntary chapel, which, by the way, I have learned 
Not all Christian university campuses are voluntary chapel. In fact, the wide majority of them in the States are mandatory. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so that I am, I was asked the other day, what are you, what are you really grateful for at your school? And you wouldn't want to change. The president was actually asking this in an, in an interview with a, a variety of people. And I said, I would not want to change that we have voluntary chapel because those who come want to be there. And that's wonderful. You have a host of other issues, not to mention tracking when you have mandatory chapel. And then they, some, some students will get fined for not showing up at chapel at other universities. I was just going to ask how you impose oh, yeah. this. Like, what do you do to a student? like, we didn't see you there. We've yeah, got people no, watching. There's, there's <laughs> disciplinary measures. And I, I just don't love that. Yeah, again, Dave, it's a good question. And I think it would take a long time to unpack it well. Um, students that come to public universities from faith backgrounds, they're all over the map. So consistent with what Ed has said, Definitely students who are on fire mm-hmm. and excited and people who hit the ground running from first year on connect with church, connect mm-hmm. with a chaplain, connect yeah. with student groups. And there's, there's a group of, of, of Christian students or students from Christian background, at least, who've, who've deliberately chosen public university in order to avoid Christian university. Right. right? And these are students who um, may have gone, grown up to the Christian school system. And they've just had enough. They think they know what Christianity is. They don't want any more of it. Um, so public university for them is freedom. And they're going to embrace that. So, And you show up like this Christian ninja trying to... Exactly. Right. Sent by their parents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and some, some of them realize quite quickly that this life that they envisioned isn't actually very good. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. some, of them, some of them drift away. We don't have the same infrastructure at place, in place as, as a place like Trinity would to be able to catch students. So that's both good and bad. It's bad in the sense that a lot of students, they miss. They, they, don't, they don't connect with church. They don't connect with other Christians or with Christian clubs or with chaplains. Um, on the other hand, the, the good part of it is that it encourages them to get responsible really fast. And that's a, that's a great spiritual virtue, responsibility, having to kind of own your faith Take, take ownership of it and be active in seeking ways to connect with other Christians and to grow in faith. This might feel like a basic question or an obvious question, but I've read a fair bit on it and I want to hear your just sort of gut response. But to students who are thriving, you know, where university for them, whether it's UBC or Trinity Western, what are the ingredients that you see that are really contributing to that? Like the things they decide to do. And I think even early on, Ed, you mentioned to me beforehand that there are certain decisions that students make early in their time at the university that really set a trajectory. Talk a bit about that. Here, here's the thing I'd like to land on. It was a conversation I had yesterday with the same student I was talking about a moment ago. Yes, you're going to have things like a good Christian upbringing can be and usually is hugely instrumental in their faith and maintaining the faith, being in scripture, being a part of a local body of believers, I tell students at Trinity, chapel is not a substitute for participation in a local church. Please go and get involved in a local church. Using your gifts is going to be good for their faith. But here's one of the things that has hit me hard in coming to Trinity. Christian friends, the people that our students are surrounding themselves with is probably the single greatest influence at this time in their life. Why do students come to chapel? Because a friend has invited them. Why are they coming to a Bible study? Because somebody has invited them. Why are they growing in their faith? Because they're having meaningful dialogue with those who are further up and further in than they are, or are struggling in the same ways that they are. But 
I cannot say enough about having spiritual friendships around you, deep, authentic relationships, especially for this generation, which has felt so alienated. And I think this corresponds with our um, doctrine of the presence of God. If our pneumatology is good, then God is going to communicate his presence, not only through the word, but also through fellow people. If you want to go and meet with God, go to God's house, meet with God's people in whom the spirit of God is living and active. So this is where I have seen um, you separate the sheep from the goats is those who are surrounding themselves by Christian friends and having fun together and studying the Bible together and being in creation together and all the like of that. Just think of Acts 2. One of the four things the church devoted itself to was fellowship. Sure. Go ahead, Todd. I would second second wholeheartedly what Ed has said. One of the, one of the places that I feel like I've had success vis-a-vis the university administration is in helping them imagine what religious practice actually looks like. During COVID, this, this, was, this became acute in that mm. several meetings I w- took part in were university administrators and even people within health and wellness, the kind of area where chaplaincy often aligns in a public university, would lament how, how difficult it was to help students thrive. And they would say things, they, they would pose this question, you know, what, is, what does student thriving look like? And, and, and it would come down often to, does the student have a sense of purpose and meaning in life? Mm-hmm. Is something bigger than just getting the grades, getting through classes, driving them and motivating them? And is the student secondly connected with other people? Are they in, are they in community? And that's where I would always interject this kind of obvious point, like, hey, you know, that's actually what religions do. Like we, we, have, a, we have a big story Right. It's about meaning and purpose, right. and and we're all about community, and that's actually true of other faiths too. It's not just Christianity. And mm-hmm. I felt like after a while, like kind of that 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 argument kind of wore them down a little bit, so that they they took chaplaincy a bit more seriously, and 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 recognized how important faith mm-hmm. on campus is for for hundreds and thousands of students at a, at a public university, and how we as as believers, as Christian believers, um, we we have something that the secular world doesn't have, and that we have this this story. We have the story of scripture and, and, and God who's on mission and who's calling us, inviting us to take part in something big and dramatic and life-giving and, cha- and life-changing. And we don't do it in isolation. We do it with other people. That's right. I feel like students who are thriving are not students who've got it all figured out, but they're doing exactly what Ed said. They're, they're with other Christians trying to work through some of the big questions of life. Can I ask you a follow-up, Todd? Like, there has been this assumption, religion's going to die out. In, in the Western society, there's sense like pe- we're going to com- come to our senses. Science will help us understand that religion's really not a viable option. And then there's this also this this postmodern trajectory where it's like actually spirituality is on the rise, and there's a new openness to the the gospel because students are actually quite interested in spirituality. Would you say that's true? Like, how are you seeing that trajectory, or one of those two trajectories played on, on UBC's campus? I would say yes to your question with, with some nuance. So what I find is that there's, there's a growing hostility to religion and, and faith and spirituality on, in public university campus. And that's paralleled. It's not paralleled. It, it's a, a symptom of this wider hostility to, to religion and faith that we find in culture. And at the very same time, there's, there's a waxing interest in it. I, I think you wanted to ask about um, deconstruction later. That's I mean, where we're going right next. Yeah, so you could jump right into that. There's, there's definite, there's definite overlap, but I find, I, I, I guess maybe to put it simply, I find both, ex, I find the extremes. 
growing, both both hostility but also interest. And uh, I'm teaching a class this this term on an introduction to world religions, and I was making the point to the class, most of whom are not Christian or religious or identify in any with any faith tradition, that we we have this assumption in Western context that religion is dead, that secularization is inevitable and irreversible. It's not. And modernization is happening in, in nations around the world. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily accompanied by a lack of interest in religion. In uh, the Mumbai Stock Exchange, for example, begins every day with a prayer to Ganesha, the god of luck. And I use this anecdote in class because India is, is a rapidly modernizing nation um, with a burgeoning middle class, growing affluence. And you, we would not imagine Wall Street or Bay Street starting their day with a prayer. Um, but in, in, in India, it, it's just how it is. And, and I throw that fact at the students just to jar them a little bit. Say, like, you don't take things for granted. Talk to, your, talk to all the international students that are coming here from other countries, bringing their faith with them. Mm-hmm. They're West African students, many of them who are at, at Trinity Western too. They're bringing their faith with them and they're coming here often as little missionaries. They're thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to go to the West. I'm going to share my faith. And Muslim students are the same. Hindu students are the same. Mm-hmm. At least statistically, religion is growing around the world. And we're seeing evidence of that even in, in pu- public universities um, through international students. Parallel to that, there's, there's a growing interest in what we just call spirituality. And this is, a, I think, a mixed blessing. It provides opportunities for conversation. It can provide challenges too because people are, are, are often thinking about the spiritual life in a highly individualistic, mm-hmm. consumerist way. But one other thing I was sharing with my class, and I, I think it's really interesting, um, studies uh, a recent study by the Pew Foundation in the States, which do really good work on religious statistics, looking at Gen Z in particular and noting in the last 10 years, how many more young people will define themselves over against Christianity. Say, like, I don't adhere to that faith. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm a nun. I don't believe, uh, I hold no religion. These stats were quite, were, were quite sharp. And when you read them as a Christian, you think, oh, this is terrible. And 63% of that same group said they believe a person could be possessed by a demon. Ah, there and you go. During the fall on, on, on Apple Podcasts, the number one podcast in religion and spirituality was The Exorcist Files, which is a new podcast put out by um, Father Caesar Martins in the States. These are, these are case studies of his exorcisms. And you know, there's something sensationalist about that, so it grabs attention. But there's actually, there's still, I think that's still indicative of a real interest in the spiritual realm, even if students and young people in general are are, are maybe distancing themselves from um, what they think Christianity is. They're they're hungry for for the spiritual. It's, mm. And if any listeners any listeners are interested in following up with uh, more information or with uh, other podcasts. A young woman named Tara Isabella Burton is doing great research right now of the spiritual life of of Gen Z and millennials, and it's 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 wild. It's it's esoteric. It's often occultic, um, but there's there's definitely a spiritual hunger out there. Mm-hmm. It will always be. I'm gonna bring these two next questions together. Parents that I talk to often have strong opinions about public schools and private schools frustrations with both in some cases. Um, But one of the fears that I hear and sense is parents are concerned about sending their kids to a public university because it's the place where they will lose their faith or deconstruct their faith. And so I'm going to focus on that deconstruction thing. What is that? Uh, Do you see it on the campuses 
uh, where you work and how do you enter into the struggle of students experiencing deconstruction? So Ed, you can go first. Well, I do think that there's going to be, I mean, to define deconstruction, or at least the way I'm going to define it, quite literally, is that the mental furniture or construction that you have and understanding of your faith is going to undergo some revision. And typically what is meant by deconstruction is that you're going to lose your faith uh, in a sense. So it's going to move you away from kind of the foundational beliefs that the church has always had. I don't think it has to mean that. So what I see at Trinity is that certain assumptions that student come in with when I was teaching a course, uh, for example, you know, you may have an assumption about the way that Scripture speaks and have a very literalistic way of approaching Scripture. And when you start to teach students about a grammatical, historical, literary, canonical, Christocentric way of reading Scripture, it's very deconstructive for them. They begin to deconstruct the way that they had been approaching Scripture, but this doesn't mean that there isn't a concomitant reconstruction of their faith. And ideally, in a Christian university like ours, that's what's happening. Now, do some people um, get their faith shaken and deconstructed in a way that's very unhelpful? Yes, I think that also happens. So, yeah, that's what's going on at Trinity. I've got some follow-ups on that, but I'll wait until sure. we come back to them in a minute. Go ahead, Todd. You're thinking deeply, so fire away. Yeah, I think Ed, Ed said it well. Maybe expecting deconstruction to be part of of the rhythm of a, of a genuinely Christian life. That's right. And I yes, I come across deconstruction on campus, and I, I see it in two forms. There's there's the good form, where I feel like the Holy Spirit is deconstructing someone, and through their classes, through conversations, through encounters with the other, the spirit is is pushing and tearing and grinding at a person so that they can be reborn mm -hmm. and reconstructed. Exactly. And then there's this really sloppy deconstruction, which I which I come across as well, where the student is jargonistic and they're repeating tropes they've heard. Give me and, an example of that. Well, she's she's not a she's not a good example because she didn't deconstruct, but she was in an introductory introductory anthropology class and uh, very early in the term asking if she could meet for a coffee because she was concerned about things she was hearing and was really rattled. And her intro, inter, intro anthropology prof was teaching about some of the religions in the world, made the remark that as a, as, as a statement of fact that um, most Christians are racists. Mo most Christians are white supremacists. That was the, that was the phrase. So she repeats this and asks me, is that true? You know, so we have a good conversation about it. Um, but this is the kind of jargon that students hear all the time about what Christianity, Christianity is like. Um, you know, Christianity caused the residential school system. Christianity is right. inherently colonialistic, et cetera, et cetera. And instead of doing the hard work of actually pursuing those questions, spiritually and intellectually, the student just accepts it. And they deconstruct their faith. They walk away from it. Yeah, it's much. It's a caricature of the faith. Christians are, and these titles, Christians are homophobic. Yeah, Christians are transphobic. Christians are racist. Christians are Islamophobic. And there's no possibility for a counter definition. Say no, I'm not homophobic, but we do have a particular view of male and female as God made them. Can we talk? So I think part of the reconstruction is to enter into the great conversation. And one of my deep desires for students coming onto a university setting is that we're able to have those conversations. One of the things that we have found is that 
we have not done a really good job in the church or in the university of preparing people to have really difficult conversations. And most of the conversations that have the greatest import today are fraught with friction. So one of the things I'd love to do at Trinity, for example, is to start a debate club. But no, let's not call it a debate club. Let's call it something more elevated like the Oxford Union or Cambridge Union or Trinity Union. They've got a wonderful par parliamentary style of having a conversation where the House says, uh, this House believes the sky is blue. And then you have three people arguing for the proposition of the House and three people arguing against it. I think it would be super. And then you have rules governing the way that the interactions take place. I would be wonderful to give our students the gift of being able to have really hard conversations. As Christians, if we believe that God is truth and that there is only one God and therefore all truth is God's truth, then we should be open to having difficult conversations with the faith that we're going to go beyond sloganeering and cliches and jargon, as you're talking about, and actually hit some pay dirt in terms of what's what's really true in this world, the correspondence between idea and reality. I'm going to come back to that as well, but I think this is also the gift of having our chaplains on campus too, like where you can be people to have those dialogues. Mm -hmm. Like you're mentioning the polarization. And sometimes my heart breaks about like you go down this trajectory and there's extremes that are forming on campus and there's no one really having the dialogue. And I think that's the gift that you hold on your campuses where you're, you're creating space for conversations and for the dialogue and for people to ask those hard questions with people like the two of you who are really wrestling and willing to talk about them. I, enjoy, I appreciated Ed's point even about something like a debate, which, which strikes us, I think maybe it might strike people who are listening as well. Isn't that what universities normally do? In fact, they don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a friend who teaches poli-sci at the university. He says, universities love diversity, just not diversity of thought. That's right. There's very little free thinking going on. I, I think we have an opportunity as Christians to, to embrace this concept of deconstruction as the work of the Spirit to build saints, to build people who are, who are responsible Christians. Can I speak Lenten on the, in the podcast? Good. Um, there's, there's this, a line that Martin Luther gives at the very beginning of the Refor Reformation in, in something called the Heidelberg Disputation, where he says, crux probat omnia, cross tests everything. And this is, the, this is the original Christian deconstruction, that if you believe in the cross and all that means for how God judges us in love, judges our thoughts, judges our hearts, judges our very being. We are being deconstructed at the foot of the cross and then put back together in the resurrection. I think when we think of the Christian life that way, deconstruction isn't scary. If we do it well, it's part of how God is making us into the people he wants us to be. It's interesting. I think one of the opportunities that we have with young people today is to invite them into a form of thought which is going to enable them to deconstruct their own presuppositions in a very helpful way. So, for example, you were talking earlier about, um, in my own words, kind of a disenchantment that people are experiencing. But the paradox that even while we're living in an imminent frame or a universe that's devoid of anything transcendent, there's a longing mm. for transcendence. And we go to find this sense of transcendence in very interesting ways. We might go to a horror film. I think it's utterly fascinating. Let's ask the question, what is the fascination with a horror film or a thriller? I think it's because one encounters at various stages, not only a fright that it makes them feel alive, but to the numinous, 
that there's something lurking behind what our five senses can apprehend. And maybe a universe where there is something lurking where the five senses can't apprehend is the more exciting one. And maybe deep down where the sun don't shine, I know that this is the universe that I'm actually inhabiting. Yeah. And uh, there is a veil. And if we could only pull back that veil, um, we would be re-enchanted again. So the opportunity to ask really good questions, which gets at this, um, to live in the mode of the inquisitive. So why do you think it is that you are fill in the blank, right? Just to put a point on this question, like let's say there's someone listening to this podcast who really is deconstructing. What would you want to say to them? I'd, I like to quote Keller in this one. I mean, let's let's say it's a doubtful form of deconstruction. I'd say with Keller, doubt your doubts. Deconstruct your deconstruction. Um, keep asking deeper questions because I believe that, you know, the rock at the bottom is Christ. And once we dig down far enough, we are going to land on Christ. It's a very Barthian thing to say, but it's true. If in him all things hold together, then you keep peeling away you're going to get to Christ at the end of the day. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like the child does, right? It's like, Daddy, who created God? Well, let's just do a thought experiment. Let's say another God created that God. Well, then, Daddy, who created that God? Well, then that God must have been created, and that God must have been created, and that God must have been created, and you get what philosophers call an infinite regress. So the foundational principle, as R.C. Sproul used to like to say, is that you have some kind of eternally self-existing being. Or you have eternally self-existing material. What's more plausible? So if you follow your thoughts home, I think you're going to end up discovering some stuff. It is often, I think often the problem is we're living by the slogans of our day. Mm -hmm. Christians believe this, or Christian is for the weak-willed, and it's caricatures. And that makes me think of what Todd was saying earlier, like there's a sloppy deconstruction, and then there's those who do the hard work in community. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I remember a conversation last last spring with a student, and I, I check in with him every couple of years. I've known him for probably four years. He's, he was just leaving the university and he wasn't going to church anymore. And I asked him why. And he said, he kind of hummed and hawed and he said, well, you know, I'm just, I'm really upset with what Christians have done to the indigenous peoples in Canada. That, that to me is, that, that's a legitimate concern, but he was being a sloppy deconstructionist. Because when I pushed him a little bit further and I said, have you, so have you read or studied any of the formal apologies issued by Christian churches, Protestant, Catholic in Canada about that? No. Have you, have you looked at some of the lives of indigenous Christians in Canada? No. Oh, come on, do that first. Do that first. Do the work, then, then make your conclusion. And if, you, if you're still so angry, then maybe you've got a, a reason to stay out of church. But do that hard work. And that's, that's what's often missing, the the sloganeering and the jargonistic. Yeah. So I think we have nothing to fear from from healthy spiritual deconstruction. In fact, it's I, I would say this is what what the Christian faith calls us to do. The Spirit's work of mortification, intellectually and spiritually, is is one of deconstruction. It's the same sort of thing you find with discussions around slavery, and with the the patriarchy, and Christian supported slavery. Well, first of all, if you're going to really look at it. Every civilization has supported slavery throughout history, and it was actually Christians who militated against the slave trade. And yes, you may have had um, male figures who were domineering, oppressive, mistreated their wives, but you also have a litany of men who treated them well. You have the Pauline witness, which was not only that 
uh, the wife's body belongs to the husband, but also unbelievably a thunderclap in the ears that the husband's body belongs to the wife. And so, yeah, you do have this kind of let's look deeper, let's look at the story. And what I wanted to say about this in particular is Tom Holland's book, Dominion. I don't know if you guys have read Tom Holland's book, Dominion, but there is a groundswell of people who are coming to faith, like Ali Hershey. Um, I don't know how to say her name exactly, but she was formerly a Muslim, and then she was an atheist, and now she has come out as Christian. And the, her pathway to faith in Christ has been sociological. She says, as Tom Holland, sorry to go back to his book, the society that we have in the West with all the freedoms that we enjoy and the beauty and some of the delight, this is a heritage of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And there are things happening in our world which I think are bringing this to light in greater and greater ways. And people are starting to say, hold on, in Western society, as we're jettisoning Christianity, we're cutting off the branch that we're sitting on. So let's come back. So I, I am very optimistic. As Roger Scruton says, if we keep on turning up the nonsense machine, which we are in certain areas of our life together, eventually people are going to wake up to the insanity of our current belief systems and come back to Judeo-Christian faith. At least this is the hope. I was going to ask you, Todd, this one question is, do you ever approach students who tell you that they're not religious with kind of a Calvin's argument that um, actually human beings are incurably religious? And let's let's talk about what we mean by being religious. Yeah, like, absolutely. Because uh, students, when, when you press them a little bit, they, they realize quite quickly that they are religious and spiritual. Mm-hmm. Even even talking to a couple of students last year who were, they, they were tired at the end of their degree and they said something very stereotypical and charming. I, I'm, I'm going to go take a gap, you know, a gap year, six months and travel in Australia and, and Europe and, you know, really find myself. They use phrasing like that. You push a little bit. Well, what does that mean? This is to find yourself. This is essentially a secular pilgrimage, right? And you think that there's a, you're going to have a spiritual dividend at the end of it. You're going to know who you are. That's a, a very spiritual thing. And when you ask, when you, when you phrase it that way, you realize, well, we are incurably religious. And even when we think we're, we're just going on a backpacking tour of Europe, we're actually doing something. We're doing a pilgrimage to find some goal. And uh, students, I, I think students respond well when they see their life that way and, and, and just have their horizons broadened a little bit. Well, it's also interesting anthropologically that they think there is this hidden, authentic self, and yet it's hidden. Well, why would you believe that there is some hidden essence within you that you need to discover? I mean, Todd, when you were sharing, I was thinking to myself that there are many students who go to university as the pilgrimage. Right, that's, University that's itself totally, is the pilgrimage. Totally. I, uh, we've, we've digressed from some of the questions I have, which is just fine. But I want to give you a chance to give advice to parents who are, perhaps, or students themselves, who are discerning whether or not to go to a public or private university. I know that's a real question. It's got lots of layers to it. But, you know, Todd, I'll get you to share first. And just like, what advice would you give to people who are discerning whether UBC is the right school for them as a believer versus, let's say, Trinity Western? or my alma mater, Redeemer, or whichever king. Right. This is a hard question to answer. So. <laughs> yeah, and but I'm going to answer by no means endorsing public universities as the only way. I think Christian universities are valuable. My own kids are in Christian schools. Um, this It's it's not just a, a viable option. It's a good option. At the same time, public universities are also a good option for a whole number of reasons, both for how that can be a catalyst for faith formation and also from the more pragmatic 
outside of you, you can get a very good degree and it can be advantageous to the rest of your life, to your vocation. But I, I, would, I would encourage parents and, and any student considering a public university, whether it's UBCO or Alberta or whatever, to, to think of their coming to university as crossing a cultural boundary. And it's not as if these students are necessarily um, coming out of some sheltered, sheltered Christian background. They may have gone through the public school system already. But I think it's very good to be intentional and deliberate about thinking, thinking of going to university as, as a kind of cross-cultural experience. And uh, I served with my family in Central Africa as missionaries for four years, and we had, we had some, some intensive psychological training and cross-cultural training before we went, because we knew we, that we would be very soon in a, in a strange and exotic environment. And the university is that. So churches and parents really need to think about how to train little cross-cultural missionaries. How, how, are you, how are you going to survive in a foreign environment? And again, it's not entirely foreign because it's not that, in some ways, not necessarily different from high school. And yet it is because everything is ratcheted up in terms of expectations and cultural pressure. And it's just a very formative moment of life. So families need to be very deliberate about what they're doing. And this is where I think a generation ago, parents probably weren't. And now we need to be. That means to echo things Ed said earlier about, about asking, you know, making sure that, that in our churches and in youth groups and in, and in sermons and in faith formation among the youth, we're taking questions seriously. We're letting, we're letting students, we're letting them be privy to some of the hard conversations around what it means to be a human in this world. Um, it also means not hovering over them, but at least, at least giving them some little nudges, especially in those formative first couple of years. I'm, I'm always surprised at how few churches reach out to me personally, and I mean Christian Reformed churches, even though they know they have students coming to study at UBC, they don't, they don't always make that step and say, and just send me a text or email saying, Todd, you know, we've got you know, Jake or Jennifer's coming. Can you check in with them in the first week? And so I find out about this, you know, eight months later when I go to preach at that church and they say, oh, my daughter's at, uh, at your campus. Have you met her yet? And I was like, well, of course I have. Of course I haven't. Um, there's 11,000 students and, and an 18-year-old is not going to, you know, try to find a, a 45-year-old chaplain unless she's got a real problem. But it, it would be, it would be, it's so easy for congregations and youth pastors and pastors just to, to network better. There's, there's a number of studies put out by, by uh, I think, by Power to Change, a parachurch organization, that talks about the first, the first two months of a student's life are absolutely decisive for them connecting with a local church, with other Christian, with Christian peers, and with student clubs and chaplains on campus. And when that doesn't happen, the likelihood that they're going to stay in the faith at university diminishes greatly. Maybe now's the appropriate time on that point, just to say, Ed, one of the things I've really appreciated about what you're doing on campus is you are actively connecting students to local churches in a variety of ways. And it was a privilege, I'm looking at Jonathan now, for us to just to be on campus in September to meet students, to introduce them to our church, to what's going on. Like, I really appreciate that. Well, connection. and we would love pastors to be on campus more often. I'm in the process of developing a policy for pastoral partners, and we will give you benefits and perks on campus. And Let's talk about those perks. Yeah, we talking and <laughs> space to meet. Well, the perks could be um, access to rooms, for one, that you could rent out rooms. And um, it could be maybe a 
card to the coffee shop, like a coffee card kind of thing. Could be access to our gym because the gym is a wonderful place to actually bump into students, to have fellowship with students, um, to unwind with students in the weight room, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I was going to say too, if I can return to the previous question though, in terms of assessing whether your son or daughter should go to a secular university, as we're calling it, or a Christian university, I would, to begin with, be assiduously idiosyncratic, which is to say you have to take seriously your son or daughter's personal story um, because there's a plethora of things that you want to be watching out for. What was their catechesis like when they were young? What level of Christian maturity have they come to? If they are not mature, do you really want to put them in an environment that might be even more deleterious to their faith? Now, there's no guarantees coming to a Christian school, and I'm not saying that. However, you want to do kind of a assessment of the benefits. The benefit of going to a university or college to begin with is indeed, as Todd was saying, um, you are you can be in a very powerful missionary context, although we're finding it trendy, you can be in a very powerful missionary context too, because we have open enrollment. Um, you're going to save money. So, I mean, for some people, the finances are simply going to be like, yep, we don't really have the option. Trinity's not cheap. So what is, what, one of the things Trinity's always asking is, what is the value added? Why would you pay $25,000, $30,000 to come to Trinity Western University? for example, or, I mean, it's about 50,000 American to go to Calvin University at this point. It's unbelievable sums of money. Why would you do that? Well, hopefully for a couple of reasons. I mean, the friends that you're going to make, which was a major thing we said before, and none of this is meant to be exclusive. I'm just talking, you know, we're always on a range or a scope of things, but you're going to bump, the ponderance of people you're going to bump into and develop relationships with are probably going to be, on the whole, uh, more Christian. Uh, there's more Christians there. You know, in your classroom, if the professors are doing what they are at a Christian university to do, they're going to give you a first-class education in the topic whilst integrating the faith at every step of the way and showing you how, indeed, Christ subsists in this subject matter. Whether we're talking about nursing or we're talking about engineering or art, Christ is in it. And so how the Christian story interlaces and interweaves with that. That is huge. So I think coming to a Christian university, Lord willing, you're going to learn, and certainly in a liberal arts context, how to worship God, not only with your heart and soul, but with all of your mind as well. And seeing, as Kuiper would say, that every square inch truly is Christ's. And there's so many neat connections to be made in this regard. Yeah, that's a great endorsement for Christian education generally, Ed. Thank mm -hmm. you for that. Mm -hmm. And it's, I feel like I, that's where I have my work cut out for me mm -hmm. on a secular campus is helping students and, and professors see Christ in everything and see all, all creation under his lordship that's because right. it's not assumed, obviously. It's often denied and students have to, have to be pushed and prodded a little bit to be able to see their studies as not just a, a means to get that degree that gets them the job, but actually a place where they encounter Jesus Christ and what That's they're right. learning. That's right. Well, and to really see their career as a vocation, as a vocation. where they can serve the Lord, yeah. whether they're a nurse or a doctor or whatever they're going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. A street sweeper, as Martin Luther King Jr. would put it. Yeah. If you're going to be a street sweeper, be the yeah. best street sweeper you could be. Yeah.
I really appreciate that. I, I want us to land on this question and I want to give you as much time to answer it as possible because I'm personally interested. Given what you're observing with students on campus, what advice will you give to church leaders about discipleship, faith formation among children and teens hmm. who are preparing? They're out, like the majority of kids in our congregations are going to universities somewhere. And, and this is your ability to critique the church, uh, to encourage the church, to speak honestly to pastors like me about where we can grow. But I want to hear, based on what you're observing, what advice, or if you could go back to ministry, what would you do differently, <laughs> knowing what you know now? And I heard two things already, like open questions, deeper conversations. So build on that. Let's do this like yeah. back and forth. So I'm thinking, you know, one of the things that we had when we were young that made a huge difference, even though you didn't appreciate it at the time, was we were catechized. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't super exciting, but it was deep. And we learned the foundational truths of the faith. And furthermore, and I, I think we underestimate this to our peril, we were given a theological vocabulary. We were taught what justification is. We were taught what sanctification is. We were taught what glorification is. We were taught to think about the interrelationship between God's sovereignty and human freedom and what that might look like. And I think that there has been a tendency among some youth groups to just make it all fun. And it should be fun. It should be massively community building. But I think we ought to give them kind of a very sturdy foundation to stand on when it comes to the comprehensibility of our faith and just the basic tenets of our faith. Help them to live into their baptismal identity by giving them the cognitive furniture to work around. And just to echo that, last week I did an open Q&A with the youth of our church and what was striking to me and deeply encouraging is that they are asking those questions, you know, like the very first question, the very first question that one of the youth asked was, how do I know I'm saved? And I'm like, okay, so why would we form a youth ministry around something that's light and fluffy when those are the questions they want to talk about? And I realize that's not always the case. There's the shallow questions too, but it, it was a reminder to me. It's like, this is actually what many of them are asking. So let's not pretend we shouldn't go to those deep places and yeah. have that kind of catechism. There's, there's some interesting studies out of the, the Harvard uh, Chan School for Public Health on religion and mental health and spiritual well-being generally. And uh, I, I often look at this, this literature and one of, a couple of the conclusive studies are that are the people who are raised in faith with catechism and I'd say with a, with a robust faith have, have greater resiliency when they're, when they're young adults. Mm -hmm precisely because they've done this sort of unsexy, unfashionable thing of how, how does my freedom and God's freedom work together? Yeah. You know, they're wrestling with these, these taxing philosophical questions. Am I going to die? And what, what, is it, what does it mean, what does it mean to, to feel the lack of God's presence? You yes. know, these things, these things that we, we sometimes want to shield our youth from are actually the things that make them resilient and, and, it, and lead to increased dividends in terms of mental health later but leaving aside the pragmatism of that um i totally agree with ed Cate catechism however it's done mm. is is really really important mm. and you mentioned baptismal identity and again i feel like it, in the reformed tradition we've not we've not leaned into our theology of baptism like we should um when we when we baptize an infant or a child as god's covenant people we all stand up and say we are going to. We're going to. We will speak for this child. We will speak into their life. We will support their family. We will pray for them, and that extends. 
I don't, I don't want to put an end to it. When does that terminate? It, it just extends and it extends when they go off to university. And that means, that means we need, we need to make sure that we're mentoring them and, and, and keeping tabs on them and checking in with them. I've, I've used this as a sermon illustration, this story, because, because it was, uh, it really struck me, but a student came from, from Ontario and, uh, from a Christian reformed background, and he had just gone through profession of faith classes. And when he did his profession of faith, he was assigned a couple of older people in the church as, as kind of mentors, people who would just check in on him, give him a call, take him out for a coffee. And uh, he comes all the way across the country to study at UBC. And it's his first Sunday. He's telling me this about a week later. It's his first weekend. He's just moved into a place, first time on his own. Sunday morning, is he going to go to church? No, he's sleeping in. And then his phone rings at about nine o'clock in the morning. And it's this old guy back in Ontario who had been assigned to him at his profession of faith. And he's like, he's like, John, so uh, where are you going to church this morning? And uh, then the guy kind of, he's like groaning. He's like, oh, all right, all right. And then, so he goes to church and then he was in church every Sunday after that. And so to, if he hadn't gone to church that Sunday, I, I'm quite sure it would have been very difficult for him to ever get into church when he was in Kelowna. Yeah. And that's that's a church taking care of its baptized youth the way the way that we want as a reformed church. And he's been catechized, he'd been profession of faith, but that, that's a that's a holistic way of thinking about faith formation. Well, this raises the very interesting question of we do have this covenant identity, and often we all stand up as the body of Christ and we say, Yes, I will support this child, I'll use my gifts, raise them in the way of the Lord to teach, but we don't identify specific individuals. I think part of the wisdom of the Catholic tradition is the Godfather and Godmother mm. concept, where you do identify somebody who's going to take a special interest in the spiritual welfare of this person until the day of their own death or the death of this other person. Yeah. Um, Martin Luther, you've mentioned Luther a couple times, not King Jr. this time, but Martin Luther said, probably the single most important thing for a Christian to learn to say, and he's talking in a covenant context, is baptismal. I am baptized. And therefore, for pastoral leaders to be able to help our young people unpack what does it mean that you are baptized? And of course, this is the center around which everything else orbits. You can get to uh, the theological web from that center, of course. And I think that that is helpful. But another thing that I just want to add into this conversation is, given what I've seen on campus and being closer to young adults now from a wide variety of walks is I think we need to be ministering to the whole person. So body, mind, soul, and strength. And we're talking a lot about the mind, but if somebody has, um, or they're not well emotionally, it's going to be very hard for them to engage intellectually. If they're not well physically, it's going to impact their mind and their soul. We really are, as scripture teaches, psychosomatic unities. And I think a holistic approach to, to discipleship is good. And top of the list for me in this is that we have embodied time together. So much of our lives and so much of our young people's lives with six and seven and eight hours on a ready device every single day is this crying need for embodiment, to be with people, to see body language. I just want to echo that point. So uh, a friend of mine, Josiah, back in Ontario, was the chaplain at Redeemer uh, for a number of years. And uh, he would just say, he himself actually studied at Redeemer with me years mm -hmm. ago, and we had a lot of time on campus and off campus at the local pub, shout out to the Coach and Lantern. Um, but he was noticing even now versus a long time ago when we were in university, 
there is far less gathering at pubs. There's far less gatherings on campus. There's far less gatherings in general. And oftentimes he will just be texting with students who are in their dorms, not doing anything. And he's just kind of mm. wrestling with like, okay, what I had in university 16 years ago, 17 years ago is very different now, mostly because of smartphones and many things, but like that lack of embodied being together actually depletes what we assume the richness of campus yeah. life will be. Yeah. And I think connected to this is also giving students experiences that are out of their ordinary um, high impact events, like going on a missions trip, where they are forced to recognize what they take for granted back home. And I know, I know, I know, we don't like, you know, just going on missions trips and um, kind of being the savior stuff. And we're not. I think the purpose of mission trips is for the transformation of those going on them. And can they do some good at the same time? But I have seen students go away on mission trips. They get out of their own context. They're in a developing world context. And they're witnessing of the joy that fellow Christians have in these areas and also the way that they can maintain their faith in very impoverished settings is incredible for their own faith. And they come back going, wow, this is amazing. And God really is alive and active. Aslan really is on the move. And I want to be a part of it. And that's cool. I would want to add, add one more thing to, to the taxonomy that I gave of you know, body, soul, heart, mind. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think one place that we as a Christian Reformed Church and churches more generally can, can really push ourselves is to cultivate a sense of imagination mm -hmm. among our youth. One of, one of the things we, we underestimate is the imaginative, the imaginative power of the Christian faith. I think it's second to none. Yeah. And, and you've mentioned earlier, Ed, um, or you use the phrase um, disenchantment, mm -hmm. re-enchantment. And the secular age is, is a disenchanted age. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's denuded of a sense of mystery, uh, a feeling of the transcendence. So we look for it in, in esoteric and idiosyncratic ways. But yeah, yeah. the Christian faith has, has a powerful imaginative grasp because the story is so good. It's second to none. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the reasons why someone like C.S. Lewis, who you just mentioned, is is so compelling is because not because he had all the right answers all the time but because he opened our he opens our minds through his books right. to a way of imagining the world as the creation of god of say as saved by god and full of god's presence i've noticed in the last couple of years as much as students are deconstructing and dechurching there's a there's a movement among young people and i have mixed feelings about this towards Roman Catholicism yeah. and towards Eastern Orthodoxy. Seen this. And Talk about that. We That's a conversation we've had many times here too. Mm -hmm. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And again, mixed feelings because I'm I'm a Protestant and very, very intentionally so. And I, I think of one student who, who told me two years ago, he's, he says, I'm, I'm just sick of Protestantism. I'm, I'm, I'm just fascinated by Roman Catholicism. And I said, I said actually, you, you don't know what a Protestant is. Because all you've experienced is is a kind of flat evangelical community church style, and you've not you've not delved into the the imaginative richness of the of the Protestant tradition. Mm -hmm. But le you know, leaving aside those sectarian <laughs> squabbles, the pull the pull of Roman Catholicism and, and orthodoxy on young people is a desire for them to be rooted in a tradition that's that's bigger and deeper than just the passing moment. And they're they're fleeting feelings, so they're able to grasp something that's that's sort of tactile, and one that suffuses their imagination with a sense of wonder and of a God that's truly great, not just Jesus is my buddy, but God is holy mystery, and 
Um, I think in our reform tradition, when we go back to our own our own original sources, we are a tradition of God's holy mystery, and we have an aesthetic, we have an imagination. It may not be as sumptuous as other traditions, but it's it's rich and compelling in its own way. And I'd love I'd love to see churches think about the imaginative role of faith in a in a way that we haven't. We're I think congr- at a congregational level, we're often driven by the pragmatic and the necessary, and we we go for what seems popular. But what's popular, what, what's, what's sort of YouTube-ish, um, isn't what's going to sustain us in the long haul. This is, as you're um, listening to you, this is sort of a parallel comment to what you're saying. This is my own experience of students in university and high school, and that is the Bible is a fragmented mess. And recovering the beauty of the imagination actually is a recovery of the beauty of the story. Of the story, absolutely. And it seems to me that like so many students going to university, uh, present company included, when I was a kid, uh, the Bible was like a, a source book of, of doctrine. It was uh, a, a book of many important things, but it wasn't a coherent, beautiful story. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't prove this, but this is true of me, that when the Bible was coherent and I understood God's purposes from creation to renewal, that made a big, beautiful gospel to me. Mm. That and, and I didn't have a Jesus is my buddy uh, formation, but I had a, a, I was still confused by the Bible, and I was still uh, I had a narrow gospel. I don't know all the reasons for that; it's not all clear to me. But I do think a recovery of the story of the Bible is essential for many students recovering the beauty of Jesus Christ. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was going to say in this. Um this bid of students or young people to go to the Catholic Church, it's fascinating. Um, they, and I agree with you completely, Todd, that they want to be rooted not only in time um, with something that's deeper, richer, more sumptuous, but also in space. If you go to a Catholic service, oftentimes the sanctuary bespeaks transcendence. It elevates the soul just to be in their space. And their worship is almost irreducibly vertical. It's not about you. It's about God from beginning to end. Now, there's some other stuff in there that I really don't enjoy, but even even the approaching of the table is something that is inviting you into mystery. And I think Protestants ought to be continually inviting people to uh, the mystery of the table of our Lord. There is deep and profound mystery here. And if people want to go further, I'd read uh, C.S. Lewis's essay on transposition, which is really fantastic when thinking about this. So, but one of the comparatives that I have seen, and this is just one element of a multifaceted picture, but with the advent and the escalation of tattooing among our young people. I was on the beach in uh, San Diego, I think it was, and you could scarcely find a young person without a tattoo. And this is not to uh, make a judgment or to be critical, but the question I'm asking is, what's going on? Mm. And one of the things that I do think is going on is I'm looking for permanence in an impermanent world. My parents didn't stay together. I haven't lived in the same place. I'm not a part of the same church community I was in when I grew up. There's so much change, so many shifting sands that this is going to stay with me. I'm going to imprint it on my body. So at least it's a marker in time, but it's also a marker of identity. I think it's rather fascinating to explore this. So I think what I'm trying to say is some of that which is leading people back to the Catholic Church is also leading us to do do things like tattooing. 
I'm just throwing that out yeah, there great for candy, great candy. intellectual candy, but you know, who knows? That's a, that sounds plausible to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is touching back on something that was mentioned earlier by both of you is the relational uh, connection. I remember specifically coming back from university to my home church after the first four months and feeling out of place. And I do think, and this is something, Jonathan, just a compliment to you, how important it is when your students return to invite them over. And one of the most, I say it's simple because it's natural to my wife and I, but maybe not to everyone, but the easiest ways you can make someone feel like their life matters is to practice hospitality and to ask them how school's going. It's not hard. And I think that sense of, I still belong, even though I'm away, I still have a place in this community, even though I'm studying for the next four years, is just so critically important. Dave, and this is piggybacking on that directly. I had an elder when I was in college who every time I would come back would say, hey, do you want to go to Moxie's? We'll have cheesecake. Love it. Went to cheesecake. I didn't understand the impact it had at the time, Mm -hmm. but it was somebody with authority in the church conferred authority who cared about me and proactively took me out for for desserts and talked to me and asked, how is your relationship with the Lord going? And these awkward questions we never want to ask anymore. Are you reading your Bible? (laughs) And we take them as too challenging, but actually it was good. And if I said I wasn't, there wasn't judgment there uh, in a bad sense. It was, well, why not? You know? So I think too, just having a team of elders who really care about your young people is incredible. I mean, I see Jonathan coming to our campus too, and I'm so grateful to the Lord. He's proactively seeking to be with some of the students. And, you know, that's great because you're a young adults pastor, right, Jonathan? Yeah. And I would say, Dave, I think, I think it's easier to do that today than it was when, I won't put you in our generation, when Ed and I were young, like we're Gen X mm-hmm. and we grew up with quite a chip on our shoulder against authority and against our elders. But I find working with Gen Z, this is a group that's very amenable to oversight from from older people. Mm-hmm. They they generally have good, they have generally have better relationships with their parents than we did at their age, mm-hmm. and they are they are hungry for oversight and for conversation and mentorship. So well, it's not it's not hard to. I think that that Moxie's those kind of Moxie's conversations go over a lot better nowadays than they did in our. Interesting. In our I mean, just anecdotally, there's a, a fellow who's attending our church. Uh, he's interested in a young Christian woman in our church, and he's not a Christian, uh, but he invited me out for coffee. And I just thought, yeah. man, like that's so different. That's than awesome. If I was your age, yeah. I would not be doing <laughs> totally. this. But it's just absolutely the case. So, And they're yeah. looking for wisdom. They are. So wrap-up thoughts. I think we're coming near the end here. There's a lot you've mentioned. You talked about the importance of asking questions, deep conversations, getting out of your context to, you know, like mission trips, having a sense of transcendence, sanctuary, relationality, inviting into the mystery. Those are some of the things that you mentioned. But is there any last thought you want to share, last piece of advice you want to give to the local church as we form young people? Absolutely. We'll go off to university. It starts when your kids are very, very young, have habits in your household that are inculcating of the faith, pray at dinner time, read the Bible, do devotions together at dinner time. It doesn't take long. It doesn't have to be long. And as Todd was on about earlier, goodness gracious me, if you can get them away from screens and listening to books like C.S. Lewis, I mean, one of the things I've been saying recently is, man, I wish I could go back. And when my kids were little and more receptive to read them more, Lewis, to read them more Tolkien, to do more to excite that imagination because, you know, it will stay with them. So I wish I could go back and do some of that, but be very intentional, spend good family time together. Life can be really, really busy. 
but you know, our, our parents, our siblings have an outsized impact on who we become. Do it while it's young. Yeah, I would, I agree with everything that Ed said. We agree with each other too I much, know, Ed. We, I, I thought we would be fighting a bit more, but I know it's, it's too, yeah, it's sorry. too we're kind here. He's like, we're, like, we're like each other's doppelganger. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to debate who used the most big words still. I was trying to do a word count on my sheet here. Well, I think I, I think Ed's assiduous idiosyncrasies <laughs> was, was my favorite one. I was like, where is he going to go with this? I was on the edge of my seat in anticipation. <laughs> oh, good memory. Yeah. Well, if I could be perspicuous here. Oh, no, that's yes. great. I, I agree with... That was rather conspicuous use of a word. <laughs> um, I've, I've, got a, I've got a daughter who's in grade 12 right now, so this is a live issue for me of, of thinking about where she's going to end up and what she's going to do with her life. And he goes to the Christian school. There's, there's just so much pressure on these kids to have, to figure out where True. they're going to study and what they're going to study. And as I told, as I tell my daughter, I would say anecdotally 40%, 50% of students change their program. Once they get to university, you don't have to have it all figured out, but I think more to the point though, as parents and as care, as grandparents, as caregivers, if we spent half as much time thinking about how to prepare our youth spiritually for, for this next stage in life that as we do with practicals of wh where they're going to, what they're going to study, what program they're going to be in, we, um, we would be just much better prepared to, to be a Christ-like presence in their lives. Be intentional about where, where your child is going to study. Um, what they're going to study is secondary. In fact, be intentional about where they're going to study and then, and then be proactive about setting them up to thrive spiritually when they're there. And that's true for parents. It's also true for congregations. Well, and it, I mean, parents have to work out their own demons too in order to be present for their children. Healthy marriage. If your marriage isn't healthy, try to get help. So you have a healthy marriage. It is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your children. And then if yeah. you have emotional hangups because of trauma in your own background, and almost everyone, depending on how you define trauma, is going to be traumatized in one way or another, either from major events or from death by a thousand cuts and minor events, emotional envelope that we were raised in and stuff like that. Proactively seek to deal with your own demons. You'll be more available for your kids. Uh, you'll be more present and you'll be more authentic in your transferring of the faith to them. Just want to do you agree with that, Todd? That. I do. I do agree. Unfortunately. <laughs> I'm trying to find a big word to say that with. Maybe just a final comment I'll make as an encouragement is that all of our stories, I think of, there's four of us around this table. We went to different institutions. And Christ was with us. He showed up in friendship. He showed up in professors. He showed up in local churches. And to those who are discerning where you're going or with your kids where they're going, uh, there's no place your child would go where Christ does not go with them. And be aware that the, the God we serve is a big God who is present in his world wherever we study, wherever we take our gap year, etc. So we, we finish this podcast with that encouragement. I just want to say thank you so much, Todd and Ed, for your time. If you are ever on the campus of UBC or Trinity Western, They'll be able to spot you, no problem. <laughs> but no, try to find them and they'd love to chat with you. Absolutely. And if you're a student, Absolutely. know that they're available to you in those respective campuses. Thank you, Dave. Yep. Thanks, you guys. And Jonathan. <laughs>